Second Corinthians chapter 11 verses 1 through 4, I hope you will put up with me in a little foolishness. Yes, please put up with me. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. Now that first phrase that we read there in the verse 1, again, like I said, Paul is feeling like he is forced or almost compelled to defend his apostleship and to make certain statements that would counter the attacks that are coming against him, the criticisms that are coming against him. And then in the last phrase there, you put up with it easily enough. He's saying to them, you are giving in to these other things, this different Jesus, different gospel, different thing, different spirit. You're giving into it. So those, that's how he's framing this. But in the middle here in these verses 1 through 4, uh, particularly 2 through 4, there are some truths here that we need to pay attention to. Now the whole of chapter 11 is a warning against being deceived. He says, I, I, I'm pointing out some things to you so that you will not be deceived. And we'll study this chapter in two parts, even though this morning we're looking at four verses, and next time we will look at verses 5 through 33, which seems like a large portion there. It's both dealing with deception. Here it's about this, this antidote to deception with purity. Purity versus deception. And in the next section, 5 through 33, it's really about discernment as an antidote to deception. So discernment versus deception. So that's what we will really be looking at, right? But if you look at this portion here, I want to begin our study of verses 1 through 4 this morning by considering the reference to marriage in verse 2. Now, marriage customs in the ancient Near East where, you know, this, the setting of this, this epistle, ancient customs or ancient Near East marriage customs would have included two distinct events. Number one would be the betrothal, when there would be a formal and a public declaration of the impending union between the girl, the bride-to-be, and the boy, the groom-to-be, right? That would have been that first public event. Now, we think of engagement today, and we have all these, you know, romantic engagements and, you know, all these wonderful stuff and Instagram-worthy, you know, engagement events and things like that. That would not have been the nature of these betrothals. They were not looking to have the visible spectacle, but rather the declaration of a commitment, declaration that this girl and this boy were going to be married. So that was that first public event. And the second public event would have been this public wedding ceremony. 
So these were involving the families, involving the community and so on. And the intent of the betrothal that would have been arranged by the fathers of the boy and the girl was to declare that the boy and the girl were not available for any other union. They were now set apart to be united together. They were committed to be united together. And a binding promise was being made. So the family, the fathers were saying, I'm promising you that my daughter will be united to your son. And the other father, the boy's father saying, I promise to you that my son will be united with your daughter. A binding promise was to be made. And for all intents and purposes, it is as if they were already married to each other. Even when they were just betrothed, it was considered as if it was like they were married. In fact, if you think of what Joseph and Mary, of what happened when Mary becomes pregnant after she is betrothed to Joseph to become his wife, the Bible says that Joseph being a good man wanted to put her away or wanted to deal with it in private so that it would not be a scandal that she was pregnant. Why? Because the idea was that once she's betrothed, she would be preserved, and we'll get into a little bit more of this, until that marriage, and then in the marriage, in the consummation of that marriage, she would have a child. But here she was now being pregnant. And God had to deal supernaturally with Joseph to say, no, this child that is in her, that she's bearing, is by the Holy Spirit. You may go ahead and marry her. She is still in that commitment, in that promise. All of that is intact. Go ahead and get married. So a betrothal was making that binding commitment, making that promise, you know, and saying, this, these two people are to be united. In the marriage ceremony... The promised bride was presented by the father of the bride to the groom, right? So these marriage practices would have been familiar to the Corinthians. They would have re readily understood what Paul was referring to in verse 2 when he says, I'm jealous for you. And then he says, I promised you to one husband... Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. You see those words that he uses and the, and the thought that is there, the Corinthians would have understood, oh, he's using this reference, he's using what marriage, marriage as God himself instituted it, he's using that to refer to now this union of Christ and the church. And so that would have become familiar to the people. And so as the spiritual father of the church in Corinth, Paul is taking that responsibility. He says, I am promising you to the Lord and I will present you to the Lord. Or I'm preparing you to be presented to the Lord. And he says, I am laboring, I am endeavoring, I am doing all that I can so that you will be prepared collectively as a group of people to be ready for when the Lord returns to join the church to himself for eternity. So the language of the Bible speaks of the marriage supper of the Lamb. It talks about Jesus returning. It talks about him coming to re receive the church, receive 
the church described as his bride to receive them to himself and so on. So here Paul is making those connections and he's saying, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do all that I can to prepare you and I'm going to pour myself out with love, with sincerity, with humility, with gentleness. But I'm going to pour myself out to instruct you, to correct you, to encourage you to do what? To remain pure so that you may be presented to the Lord. Not just promised, but then presented. So that in between time, between the promise and the presentation, we're living on the earth. We come to know the Lord, we accept Him, we have been promised to Him, but now there is going to be a time when we will be presented to Him. And that in-between time is what we're looking at or considering even more so this morning. Now when we get to our point of application this morning, I'll return to this point about purity, but before we get there, look at what Paul does. Because he's warning and he's concerned for the Corinthians. He's alarmed at the possibility that although they've been promised to the Lord, they have accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they could compromise their pure relationship with the Lord and therefore no longer be committed to Him, which means that they won't be ready to be presented to Him. They've been promised to Him, but they're not ready to be presented to Him. There's something that has happened in the middle that has derailed them. That's what he's concerned about. That's what he is pointing out. And he says to them, or rather, what is, the question is, how could they become unprepared between being promised and then being presented? What could happen? They could be deceived. And he says the deception would be that there's a cunning message of a different Jesus, a different spirit, or a different gospel. You'll notice that when it comes to distinguishing between what is true and what is false, between what is good and what is bad, the Bible does not exhaustively describe what is false or what is evil. It doesn't go into great detail. It doesn't say, oh, here are all the details of this, this false teaching. Here are all the details of the devil. In fact, you don't know a whole lot about the devil. Right? I mean, they hear all the details of what, how he does his evil plans. The Bible doesn't try to go into a lot of detail about the evil and about what is false. Instead, the Bible constantly and consistently describes what is true and good by describing God. Describing his character, describing his way, describing his truth, describing his life. Instead of describing the darkness, the Bible shines the light. Instead of condemning the sinner, the Bible lifts up the Savior. Instead of emphasizing the rules, what we should not do, the Bible emphasizes our relationship with the Lord that prompts us in love to do what we should do. The Bible is constantly on the side of the good and the right and the loving and the God-glorifying. So the point that, you know, and we have to start to glean from that, that that's where the Lord wants us to focus. We're not cursing the darkness. We're 
looking at the light. We're not, you know, saying, you sin. We say, what a savior. We, we keep emphasizing the good of the Lord and the goodness of the Lord so that people are drawn to him. So when we consider what can deceive us in terms of a different Jesus or a different spirit or a different gospel, what we really need to do is to focus on the right Jesus, the right spirit, and the right gospel. So I don't want to go through this morning and describe to you all the heresies that have been coming up in the world about Jesus or the spirit or the gospel. That's not my point. And in fact, I couldn't exhaustively cover all the false teachings that are there. I couldn't tell you, here are all the cults and here are all the groups and here are all the, you know, the ways in which people have corrupted the truth. But what I can do is remind you once again of familiar truths, sometimes too familiar, but I want to remind you again of the right Jesus, the right spirit, and the right gospel. You see, the right Jesus was fully God, yet without heavenly glory, having laid aside his heavenly glory, and he was fully man, yet without sin. Of a God who would say, I will come into the world in the form of a man to relate to man, to pay the price for men, the penalty for their sin, so that they may be united to me and in relationship with me. That was the purpose of Jesus, coming into this earth. But when he comes into the earth fully God and yet fully man, fully God and yet without glory, fully man and yet without sin, he is the Lord of lords. He is the king of kings. He is the prince of peace. It is how he is described. And even though we don't see the consummation of it in the physical, in the world, as he walks in it, it is clear that that's what he's declaring. He says, I have come into this world to bring in the kingdom of God. And here we are more than 2,000 years later and you say, oh, I don't know, I, I'm not sure I see the kingdom of God the way that I would have thought of it. I don't see God reigning. I don't see all of the power manifest. I'm not sure. But if Jesus has declared that to be his purpose, he said, I come into this world and I preach the kingdom. He, he, he said it all the time. He talked about the kingdom of God. If that was his declaration, then we have to say, what is it that he has done? Not what is it that I see, but what is it that he has done? And Jesus, the right Jesus, supernaturally born, predictably or prophetically declared and therefore crucified, put to death on the cross, and then miraculously resurrected, he is the one who reigns at the right hand of the Father. He is the one who is in glory. And he is the one who is returning for his bride, the church. So these are truths, and there are a whole bunch more statements, and I'll go through a few more things that are much more known to us when I come later to the creeds. But the point that I want to make to you is that this, the right Jesus needs to be our focus. Don't worry about all the other false teachings that may come up. Don't, don't, don't try to figure out how to counter everything. If you do, I mean, if you learn the, the, 
the different kind of philosophies that are out there or heresies that are out there and you know how to respond to it, fine, that's all right. But more importantly, if you've got limited time and resources to expend, expend it on knowing the right Jesus. What does the Bible really say about who Jesus is? What he has done for us? What, how we have to relate to him? What, what our lives should look like in relation to Christ? Focus on that. Right? So the right Jesus. The second thing is the right spirit. The promised Holy Spirit. The person, the third person of the Trinity. The one who was in existence forever and will be forever who was present in every way, even through the creation of the world and through the sustaining of the world and for us now, is not, the, is not something that happened. It's not just a force. It's not, you know, we, we somehow tap into some new energy. It didn't happen after Jesus was resurrected and on the day of Pentecost. It's not the sole sort of domain that a Pentecostal or a charismatic can claim. None of that. The Holy Spirit is God himself who's been at work in, the, in all of what God has intended forever. So let's have the right understanding of the Holy Spirit. The promised Holy Spirit draws our attention to Jesus. Jesus said when the Spirit comes, he will remind you of what I have said. The Holy Spirit will be your instructor so that you have no need for even a teacher. Again, I'm not saying don't, don't learn. Go to school, go to things, learn, be, have teachers. But the Bible is making clear that the Holy Spirit instructs us, corrects us, rebukes us, gets us on the right path. The Holy Spirit's role is to keep us in step with the Spirit so that we are following in the footsteps of Christ. A purpose and a reason for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowers us, fills us with power, with strength, with gifts, with the means by which we can live this life with victory as an overcomer, knowing the purpose of God, receiving the wisdom of God, empowered to do what the Lord is asking us to do. He never calls us to do something that we won't be able to. He doesn't, he doesn't crush us. He doesn't say, oh, you think you know it? Okay, here, do this, and then crush us. He says, look, I am a kind and good and loving Father for, to you. I know how much you can bear, and with the power of the Holy Spirit, I will enable you to do what I'm calling you to do. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit preserves us, allows us to be persevering in faith and preserved in faith so that we are kept in Christ until he returns. There is a role for the Holy Spirit. Again, I'm not trying to be exhaustive about this in terms of all that could be said about the Holy Spirit. We've gone through things in the past. We know, you know, what we've talked about gifts and the fruit and everything else. And we said, this is the role of the Holy Spirit. So again, I'm just simply reminding you and going through these things fairly quickly. Which brings us then, so if we're talking about the right Jesus, we're talking about the right Spirit. And then the third thing is that we would have the right gospel. Salvation through no other person or means and through only Jesus Christ and what he has done for us on the cross. Now, 
You can live a good life. You can live a moral life. You can even do something that gives you a whole bunch of mental and even spiritual peace. Right? There are plenty of religions and plenty of movements and plenty of things out there that, let, that promise that and in a sense deliver that. Right? These are all real experiences. If that, if that was not the case, nobody would be going into that. They would try it and say, that doesn't work. But there are plenty of things in the world around you that offer those kinds of helps, that, that way to help you to live a better life, to be a better you. Right? There are plenty of things out there. But there is only one truth, only one way, only one word that is given and that word becoming flesh. There's only one that shows us how we can be redeemed from our sins. That we can be forgiven for our sin. The whole thrust of Christianity is that what we could not do on our own, God has done for us. What we could not do to save ourselves, the Lord has done on the cross. He paid the price. He redeemed us with his own blood. He has set us free and he puts us into a position in relationship with Christ that we could not have achieved on our own. All our good works couldn't have gotten us there. All the things that we would do to meditate or to go on pilgrimage or to offer sacrifice or to do something else or to pledge my firstborn son or to do whatever you would think of would never be enough to say, and by this I know that I am cleansed. By this I know that I am free. By this I know that I am now in relationship with God. What confidence could you have if you relied only on your own ability? Instead, God says, I have done this for you, and you rest in my salvation. That's amazing. The right gospel, salvation through Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone. Oh, that's transforming, isn't it? So, you know, the thing is, though, I tell you that we have to focus on what is right, on what is true. Don't worry about what is false. But you know what? The reason that Paul says this, and in fact, I'm not saying that he said it as a prophecy. He didn't say in a few years' time this is going to happen. But what happened in the church is that through those next few centuries, there was so much false teaching, so many heresies, so many things, where instead of focusing on the right Jesus and the right spirit and the right gospel, the church started to wander into all sorts of false teachings. So by the 4th century, by about 325 AD, there was a council that was held in Nicaea, and in that council, this is modern-day Turkey, you know, and in, they came up with a statement that said, this is what we believe. Not this is what we don't believe. They said, this is what we believe. And it came to be known as the Nicene Creed. 
And then a few years later, in about 381 AD, they, they realized that there were some things they hadn't stated quite as clearly as they should. And so there was a revision of that Nicene Creed. And then that is commonly, you know, sort of found in all sorts of churches and so on. And what happens today is that in most liturgical churches, regularly, if not every week, there is a recitation of the Nicene Creed, of the you know, later version, really, of the Nicene Creed. There's also the Apostles' Creed and there are other things. And a creed is just a statement of belief. And so in almost all of these churches, on a regular basis, they just recite this. They read this. They sing it, right? And what happens is that just by repeating these truths again and again and again, it is reinforced in us and it's reinforced in the spirit if, if we are truly allowing the Holy Spirit to bring those words to bear in our life. Otherwise, it is vain repetition. And there are plenty of people who will recite these words every single week and never live according to it. They do it out of duty or obligation or ritual or tradition or whatever it may be. So we have to be careful of that. But at the same time, for those of us who regularly don't do this, it's apt to be reminded of it and to be reminded of what the truths of the gospel message really are. I'm going to read for you this Nicene Creed. Now, I grew up uh, in boarding school in India when I was younger. And I went to a CSI church, Church of South India, which is really an Anglican church. And every week we would go to the cathedral for the service. And every week we would recite the Nicene Creed. So it, I remember it, you know, and it's in my head. So many years later, you could wake me up in the middle of the night and go, can you sing the Nicene Creed? And I would go, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty. I mean, it, you know, it just sort of comes into your head because you did it regularly, right? But this is what it says. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten, begotten of the Father before all ages, light of light, true God of true God, begotten not made, of one essence with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became man. And he was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate and suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified glorified, who spoke by the prophets and in one holy Catholic or universal and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come.
I encourage you, go, go Google all these things. You can find it, you know, find all the things, the text. But I encourage you, regularly, just remind yourself of these truths. Just go back and say, you know what, Lord, I believe. I believe these things. Or find the songs that are out there that, you know, that, that, that are all based on these words, you know, that, that are out there to remind you. And just sing it. Just remind yourself. Just go through it to say, I thank you, Lord, that you are giving me these truths that as I regularly affirm them, it keeps me from being deceived. Not because I know all about the deception, but because I know all about the truth. And when I look at the truth and keep looking at the truth, when the false comes, I go, that doesn't look right. That doesn't sound right. That doesn't feel right. Because here, I know the truth. And this doesn't line up. So I don't even need to spend time over here. I just need to spend time in what is right, what is true. Which brings us to our point of application this morning. Because when we know the Word of God or hear the Word of God, we have to respond to it. And this brings us all the way back to the first thing that Paul talks about, which is that we have to respond and apply the Word of God that we have heard by living in purity to avoid deception. The purity that Paul is referring to is this consecration, is this being set apart, it's this being dedicated for God and God alone. It's saying, I belong to no one else. I am betrothed to God. I'm not going to compromise. I am not going to compromise in any way with anyone else in any other circumstance because I am committed to this union, to this Lord, to this relationship. That's the power of that betrothed, committed, covenant relationship that you're saying, because of that, I consecrate myself, I separate myself from all that would corrupt body and soul, and I reserve myself for the Lord alone. In Ephesians chapter 5, when we were studying the book of Ephesians, we saw in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And I'm not going into a thing about husbands and wives, that's for another time, but what did Christ, how did Christ love the church? By giving himself up for her to make her holy, pure, consecrated, set apart, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. Revelation chapter 19 verse 7 says this, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Before every, every wedding, what's the bride doing? Making herself ready for a long time. 
you know, hair, makeup, gown, train, wedding party, flowers. I, the bride is making herself ready. Guys have it a little easier, you know, put a suit on, you're done kind of thing. But the bride, oh man, I mean, she's spending a lot of time, effort, money to get ready. And the Bible says, look, the wedding of the Lamb has come. The greatest wedding that there could ever be. And the bride has made herself ready. How often do we think about that? We just go about our lives every day. We live. We do our stuff. When we need help, we pray. You know, maybe even if you don't need help, you're, you know, you're praying. You're praying regularly. You know, but we just sort of go about our lives. But how many times do we stop and we say, am I preparing myself today? for the wedding? Am I preparing my heart? Am I preparing my hands? Am I doing what is necessary to be pure and to be without fault and blemish so that I who have been promised to the Lord will be presentable to the Lord? I who am waiting for the Lord would not be deteriorating in my purity as I wait for him, but would be growing in my purity as I wait for him, so that when he returns, oh, I'll be ready. I'm not caught unaware. Anytime he returns, I don't have to say, Lord, give me 10 more years. I'm not yet on that purity scale. I'm not yet there where I need to be. Give me 10 more years and then return. I can say to him, 10 minutes from now, if he returns, I'm ready. Is that the readiness that we have in our lives daily? Or are we more ready for our careers, our families, our pursuits, our ambitions, all of the things that define us by ourselves, by our own measures, and define us in terms of what the world will say is successful? Are we more prepared for that? Or are we actually prepared for the marriage of the Lamb? Multiple references in Matthew and in Luke and in other scriptures that we have to be prepared, we have to be ready, we have to be waiting. I want to come back to verse 3 though that we read here. Paul says, I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray. Remember what we talked about when we talked about taking thoughts captive. You may build strongholds of false beliefs in your mind and be led astray. That's what he's warning them. He's saying, look, all sorts of teachings will come up. All sorts of statements will be there. All sorts of heresies will come. And those strongholds that are built up of false beliefs have the potential to lead you astray. What will they lead you astray from? from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. How can we live deception free? How can we ensure that we will not be deceived? How can you make sure that you won't give in to that scam likely call that's coming on your phone and end up sending money to Nigeria? You know, like, how will you know that you're not going to be deceived? If you are sincere and pure in your devotion to Christ. You know what characterizes a devotee 
of anybody, of anything, that's all they think about. That's all that they do. They will even separate themselves from the rest of the world and go and live somewhere else and, you know, give their all to that, whatever they're committed to. And we say, oh, what a devotee. How many people look at us as Christians and say, oh, what a devotee of Christ. People look at us and say, oh, yeah, they have all these beliefs and they do these things and they're that, they're this. But do they look at us and see devotees who are totally and completely devoted, whose devotion to the Lord is so front and center that you cannot deny that, okay, I see it. Paul says the way that we would be preserved, the way that we would be kept, the way that this would keep us from de de deception is your sincere and pure devotion to the Lord. Single-minded, sincere, setting apart, consecrating ourselves, saying all that I'm doing. It's not for the sake of my child. It's not for the sake of my spouse. It's not for the sake of my career. It's not the sake of my ministry. It's not the sake of my reputation. It's all for the Lord. And when we do that, when the Lord is what is all-consuming for us, there will be a difference. Now, as a church, why do we need a church? Why do we need a local body? Because I need to be able to encourage you to do that. And you need to encourage me to do that. When you see me going astray, it's waning in my devotion to Christ, being pulled into the things of the world, you need to say to me, hey, your devotion is decreasing. The flame is growing low, is, is waning. You need to be able to say that to me. And I need to be able to say it to you. We need to hold each other accountable to say, are we remaining devoted to the Lord? And as we remain devoted to the Lord, are we staying true to his call, to his purpose, to what he has done? Oh, if we do that, if we will be involved in one another's lives like that, if every local church is being formed and growing in that way, the church universal, the church apostolic, the church that is the bride of Christ collectively will be prepared for his coming. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that, Lord, you love us so much that you said we have been betrothed to you. You made that happen. You initiated it. You did it. You're building us up and you're the one preserving us and working in us and changing us, transforming us by the renewing of our minds. You're the one that cleanses us. You're the one that gives us life each and every day to live this out. And we thank you for all of that, Lord. And then you bring us to yourself and then you present us to the Father. And you say, here, here, here is the bride, blameless, pure, ready, Oh, we thank you for all of that. We thank you, Lord, that it's all that you have done for us. When we were unable to do any of this on our own, you did it for us. And we are so grateful. We thank you. Father, I thank you that when the caution is that we would not be deceived, that, Lord, we don't have to worry about deception. We just have to keep our eyes fixed on you. Father, we have to keep our eyes fixed on the right Jesus, on the right Spirit on the right gospel. We have to fill our hearts with the right Jesus, the right spirit, the right gospel. 
And then, Lord, we have life. We have truth. We have light. We have the way. Oh, Lord God, we thank you that we have you. Hallelujah. Lord God, I pray that we would be, Lord, diligent, diligent, Lord, to be prepared, to make ourselves ready, to pay attention to what you are saying to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.